Hi guys, Jack here. To those of you guys who have already listened to The Hand with Craig Raymer, uh, this might be old news, but I wanted to reiterate uh, how excited Zach and I are to be hosting an event on November 12th of this year with Greg Raymer. Uh, and that event is a, we're going to be hosting a 2-5 No Limit Cash game at the Poker on Air Studios in Akron, Ohio. Uh, and the Poker on Air Studios has the capability of live streaming uh, the poker game with you know access to whole cards. And Zach, Greg, and I will be commentating that game. Uh, and participants, in addition to being able to play in the game, you know, will receive a document from Zach, Greg, and I outlining their strengths and weaknesses as a player. Uh, they'll get to enjoy a dinner with the other players, Zach, Greg, and I, which is an opportunity to meet not only Zach and I, but more importantly, Greg, and pick his brain. And finally, there's an opportunity to upgrade to get a full leak finder package, which means that every hand uh, that that participant played in it will get evaluated uh, in a comprehensive document. Anyways, we're really excited about this. Hopefully you guys are too. And if you have any questions uh, or want more information, you can either head to our site, justhandspoker.com, or you can email myself or Zach at jack or Zach at justhandspoker.com. All right, guys. Uh, enjoy the interview. So today, we have a man who needs no introduction, 2004 main event champ, Greg Raymer. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. Uh, I, I guess we did need an introduction, though, since this is audio and no one could see me. They, they would presumably have to have you tell them who's speaking. <laughs> that is true. That is very true, Greg. That's why... So it's, I'm glad you introduced me. That's why you won the main event and not me. So, um, did you... Did you primarily play tournaments before 2004? Um, I would say it was a little bit closer to 50-50 before then. I mean, I've always enjoyed tournaments more for the most part, um, ever since I at least started getting into them. Just because I'm, you know, a competitive guy, I I used to play racquetball at a high level in high school and stuff. And uh, it's, you know, just somehow, you know, more meaningful winning a tournament than winning the same amount of money in a cash game. You know, it, it somehow feels better, you might say. And so I, I think I just have a preference for tournaments. But mm-hmm. before I won the main event, I had been working for six years in Connecticut, uh, living near Foxwoods, Mohegan Sun. Foxwoods used to have a great No Limit Hold'em tournament every Tuesday night, and I would play that whenever possible. And then I'd usually go on in on Friday or Saturday and play cash games. And uh, right before I won the main event, my main cash game was a 75-150 mix game. So it was usually uh, Omaha high-low, stud high-low, maybe hold'em, maybe stud high. You know, some mix of those games. Hmm. Well, not to derail Zach's uh, questions, but I'm curious, like, coming from that sort of mixed game background, what do you think 
what lessons do you think you'll learn from that experience that maybe today's players who are maybe exclusively no limit players are missing? Well, I think the way I'll ask, answer that question is to refer to the uh, the famous David Sklansky book, Theory of Poker. Um, even today, even though it's been decades since he wrote that book, um, if someone says, like, you know, what books do you recommend? I always tell them that's if you're going to recommend one book, that's the one. And one of the things that's interesting about that book is that he doesn't teach you how to play Hold'em or any specific form of poker. The book just discusses general concepts that apply to all forms of poker. But when he's giving you examples, you know, he finds it much easier to give examples of some concepts by using draw games and other concepts by using flop games and other concepts by using stud games. And I think the thing about the mixed game is that it's kind of like the idea of cross-training for athletes, that, you know, if you play stud, you're going to improve certain skills that apply a lot more often in a stud game than they do in hold'em, but they still come up in a hold'em game, but now you're going to be better at them. So I think that's the thing about the mixed games, is that you will find that it, it also improves your, your no-limit hold'em or hold'em game. Yeah, that's interesting. I think... We have an article on our site about uh, five poker books we recommend, and Sklansky's book is one of them. And when I was reading that, I'm familiar with the rules of all these mixed games, although I have not spent anywhere near as much time on strategy as with No Limit. But what what was, I think, really useful for me with that book compared to other books I've read is that, right, you know, the examples are often in these other games, and it makes you sort of do the work on your own in terms of bridging those concepts to No Limit. Uh, just because the types of situations, obviously, with you know the odds you're getting laid in these limit games are very different. Uh, so I think being forced to do that work on your own and you know getting these situations that maybe don't come up as often in No Limit that do come up a lot in these limit games are useful in stretching your brain. So yeah, I think that's really cool. Yeah, I mean, just talking with you now and kind of the few calls we had beforehand has really made me want to, you know go into mixed games more. Unfortunately, it just doesn't seem to make like personal sense in terms of, you know, the financial payout and I don't have access to those games locally. Um, if if I could if I were to be able to envision a way to, you know, make income from mixed games in X amount of time, then it would I think look like it would be worth the investment. But I think there's a lot of people kind of in me and Jack's shoes who like, you know, maybe play for profit on the side, they play full time um, they don't really have access to many mixed games or maybe there's just like one game, two games in their local card room. Um, and it's kind of hard to imagine, you know, making the transition and having it be worth it just because of the lack of games if you're not in like, you know, Vegas or Foxwoods. Oh, without a doubt. I mean, I, I travel around, you know, playing tournaments and teaching my seminars and stuff all over the country. And most rooms, really all you find is... You know, anywhere from 70 to 95% of the games are no limit hold'em, um, some limit hold'em, and then maybe a little bit of Omaha or PLO. And and that's and, and unless you are like in Atlantic City or Foxwoods, you very seldom see stud. Um, when you're at a huge place like Commerce, there are some stud games. You know, there's a little of everything, but how many poker rooms have 200 poker tables? Um, you know, where there's room for, you know, for a game to make up 1% of all the games and yet have, I mean, that means there's one or two tables going at, at that place. Um, 
So you're right, you can't find these games most places, but what you can do maybe is, like if there is a small Omaha game in your local room, well, when you're on the wait list to get into that No Limit Hold'em game that you want to play, well, then sit down if there's an empty seat and play that, you know, like 4-8 limit Omaha high-low for a little while. And, yeah, you're not going to make a lot of money, you know, because it's not a big game or anything, but you're also not going to lose much money. But it might teach you some lessons that are going to be applicable to your No Limit Hold'em game later. Yeah, that's a really hmm. good idea because yeah, I mean, it's a at, great idea. at our local casino, there's usually at least one table of four eight. Always, it's usually not more than one or two, but I'm sure there's a lot of times when you know that situation is applicable where we're waiting for a no limit or PLO table. And even if it just averages, you know, a few hours a month over you know over time, that adds up. Yeah, I mean, the biggest mistake I see Hold'em players make when they start to play the the split pot games. So whether it's like Omaha high-low, stud high-low, or even things like Bedusi and Bedesi that are not even, they're not high-low, they're like low-low. You know, it's two different forms of low, but it doesn't really matter. Anytime there's a split pot, um, that brings in a lot of concepts and thoughts that don't really exist in a one-winner game or don't exist much. But there still is some relevance. Um, the big decision frequently in a high-low split or any split pot game when you have a strong hand, it's like, do I want to keep this pot multi-way or do I want to narrow the field? So a lot of the uh, decisions, especially in a more high-limit version of, of those games, you know, if you're raising, it's like, is that guy raising because he's trying to force me out because he has a, uh, a hand that's mediocre both directions and he figures if he gets it heads up, he's going to win one or the other? You know, and therefore I should hold on with my second nut low or something like that. You know, or and and it doesn't apply as often in no limit, but there are times when you have a hand where you're kind of like, well, maybe I shouldn't raise, you know, with this hand right now because I want to keep the field multi-way. You know, like if I flop the nut flush draw but nothing made and the guy bets into me, that would be a strong reason not to semi-bluff raise. Whereas semi-bluff raising with a you know, nut flush draw is, is often going to be a good decision. Maybe I shouldn't when there's three people behind me. Because what are the chances I'm going to get all three of them and the original raiser to fold? You know, the semi-bluff part probably isn't going to work. But now there is a good chance that this pot will become heads up. And then if I make my flush, that's less likely that I get paid off after I make it. Whereas if I just flat right now, I'm inviting those other people to come along. So if the turn makes my flush, there's more chance of those implied odds coming through and me getting paid off, you know, in the next betting rounds. And, you know, so some people won't make that, won't, won't maybe learn that lesson just playing no limit. They're just thinking, you know, oh, a nut flush draw, that's a good hand to semi-bluff with. And they just start doing it indiscriminately. You know, if I was heads up, it would be a much better semi-bluff. Multi-way, I should be more inclined to just flat and keep other people in so that I get paid off when I make the hand. And so that's a lesson that comes up a lot in an Omaha high-low game is, like, I'm drawing to the nut low. Let's not raise this guy because then I'll just get heads up against one guy who almost certainly has me beat for high because the real value of my hand was that nut low draw. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, a perfect example of how that directly applies to hold'em. 
Um, definitely making me want to sit sit in these games a little bit more. I had the opportunity to play in a mixed game where actually everything was played no limit. I knew three of the games beforehand, but most were kind of these just variants of common poker games. And I don't think like my mind was stretched that much about poker maybe ever, you know, trying to learn 10 new games and kind of adapt to this whole thing. So it's, it, it sounds like it'd be a, a fun thing for me to do personally and, you know, likely for a lot of our listeners too. Well, wherever I end up, I'm gonna. That'll be one of my goals is to get a lot more uh, different games in the play in the mix. Um, I've been talking to uh, poker rooms around the country about relocating, being their full time ambassador, and you know I'm not looking at it as a ceremonial job where I'm just gonna get paid for them to use my name. You know I'm looking at it as where I'm gonna be there playing in that room on a full time basis, um, and working with the poker room manager to you know, improve the business of that room, to bring the players in from other rooms in the area. And one of the things also I'd really like to do, I think would be helpful, is, you know, if, let's say I make this deal with one of these kind of typical poker rooms where most all the games are no limit hold'em. Well, let's have me host, you know, limit hold'em, Omaha high-low, stud, draw, you know, limit games in general, whether they're one winner or split pot, and try to promote more of that type of play in the room. Um, I think it's better for the vast majority of the players. It's certainly better for the room. Um, and I think it's just a lot more fun. I think people have a lot more fun playing limit poker than they do no limit when they're in a cash game. Because it's not as stressful. It's more easygoing. You can be more relaxed. You can smile and give off, risk giving off a tell by chatting with people and stuff like that. Um, because, hey, it's just one more bet. You know, it's not like this guy's making a decision or you're making a decision for, you know, 20 or 50 or 100 big blinds. And the correctness or incorrectness of that decision is going to have a massive impact on your result at the end of the night. You know, and limit it's one more bet. So I think people have a lot more fun. Um, but it doesn't mean that those games aren't just as skillful, but it's a you know, different skills are prioritized. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's it's getting harder and harder for, like, a truly recreational player to survive uh, in no-limit games where everyone has an idea of what to do. Even, even when people are making huge mistakes. Uh, I don't know if... In, in limit games, is it easier for recreational players to sort of you know, play longer, potentially lose more, and have more fun? I mean, that's that's sort of the what it sounds like from what you're saying. Well, I think there's a lot of the, the players out there in that, you know, recreational or, you know, moderately serious player pool. You know, not full-time pros, but, you know, people who are not everything other than someone who's a serious full-time pro or a real serious part-time pro. Everyone else, and that's the vast bulk of the players... Um, most of them have some kind of budget and they can afford to lose that much and then they quit playing until their next paycheck. So if we had those people, if they were all playing like 4-8 limit hold'em instead of 1-2 no limit, they would probably still lose that $500 a month that they're losing now. But as you know, I mean, if you play 1-2 no limit, I mean, you know, even one of you guys who are playing it very seriously and are winning players... It's not like you can't be 
negative 500 in a fairly short period of time. <laughs> you know, yep. I mean, that's, that's, that's just, true. that's just a couple of, a couple of cold decks, you know, or, or bad beats and there you are. So I think that all those players are going to, on average, spend a lot more time in the poker room because it's going to take them a lot more bad play and or bad luck to, to be minus 500 playing 4-8 limit than it is 1-2 no limit. And so I think the weaker players will get in a lot more hours, which, since they're playing for fun, presumably means they'll have more fun for that reason, because they're just getting that many more entertainment hours for their dollar. And uh, also, I just like I said, I think from minute to minute, I think the limit games are more fun, that the players are enjoying themselves more. So the only people who lose out, if there is kind of a shift back to limit, poker as the main game in most rooms will be the people who are trying to grind out a living or an extra income, you know, from the smaller no limit games, because I think they will have a harder time making the same hourly in like a four, eight limit game as they were making in a one, two, no limit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, probably. Yeah. Especially I mean, just, if people are, you know, if the worst players are migrating. Yeah, I, mean, I don't even mean that. If you just if you just took a, a room that, if you just mandated like, hey, you guys, you have no choice, and you have to keep playing, but now you're going to play four eight limit instead of one two no limit, so it's the same lineup of players. I think you would find that, you know, if there's a guy who's like, oh, I can beat the one two no limit game for ten thousand or twenty thousand a year, he cannot probably beat the four eight limit for that same amount, whatever it is for him, and if it's Two five no limit versus let's say ten twenty or fifteen thirty limit. Again, I, I don't think the guy, whatever amount he's winning in the two five no limit, he probably can't win as much in that more comparable ten twenty fifteen thirty limit game. So it's, mm-hmm. I mean, it's possible he will, and all that. But I'm just saying, you know, wherever I end up, one of the changes I'll be trying to promote is, you know, it's obviously you're going to give the customer what they want, but if I'm hosting a limit game, be it Hold'em, Omaha, Stud, whatever, hopefully that'll induce the players to want to try that game out because they want to play with me. And then, you know, with any luck, they'll say, hey, you know what? It wasn't just Greg. I just think, you know what? This this game's just more fun than my 1-2 or 2-5 no limit game that I used to play. And uh, maybe we'll want to start playing this game more often. And so for those recreational players, I think they'll have a lot more fun for the same amount of money. And and it works out better for the house because they'll, if those people play longer, that means more rake is being collected. Um, and the losers in that equation are those people who are grinding out small profits in those small games. Because they will grind out smaller profits in the limit games versus the no limit. So it's this kind of move would be bad for the kind of person who is coming to you. Yeah. You know, they're not going to be able to make as much money if this shift were to occur. Um, but, uh, you know, they still, you know, if they want to win, if they want to come out ahead, if they want to win more, they still need training. It's just, they're going to have to now move up to a, you know, a bigger limit game to make the same amount. Mm-hmm. So, in in limit tournaments, uh, would you say the edge is similarly reduced, or 
do you think there's a bigger edge to be had in limit tournaments against uh, amateur players than in cash games? Maybe. Oh, the limit tournaments are just huge variants. Um, you know, before the poker boom, most cash games were limit, and and in most of the country, hold'em was the dominant game. Stud on the East Coast. I mean, when I moved to Connecticut in '98. Um, you know, and if Foxwoods had 40 tables going, certainly 32 to 35 of them were stud games. So it was wow. it was by far the most popular game, but it was limit, of course. And the the Hold'em games were all limit, and then there might be an Omaha game. Um, and most tournaments were limit, um, whether they were Hold'em in most of the country, whether they were stud tournaments at Foxwoods, but certainly. You know, like now if you're a regular in a poker room and, you know, your room has several tournaments a week and you're thinking, you know, and most of the tournaments now are no limit. Well, it's like how often when you look along, you know, at all the different regulars, you think, oh, like that guy's one of the worst regulars in this room. Like how often does he ever win the tournament? Whereas back when it was limit poker, that was much more common. You know, the guy would win the tournament on whatever night of the week and you'd be like him. Wow. Like he's horrible. Like, he's like the worst, you know, he's one of the worst players in the room. Um, it, there's just a lot more variance in limit. Um, you know, you would, and it's funny, I mean, when you would play online poker, if you were playing a tournament and you look at a leaderboard, people are zooming up and down the leaderboard much more often and much faster in a limit tournament than in a no limit. It just, you know, and you would think like, well, but it's no limit, like it's so much you know, you only, it only takes, you know, one hand to double up. But even though that's true, even though theoretically you could move up and down the leaderboard a lot quicker and no limit, in practice, there's a lot more. there was a lot more movement in the limit tournaments. And it's just a lot more common, like, you know, you talk to a buddy and it's like, oh, you know, the average stack is 50,000 chips in this tournament and he's got 200,000. It was a lot more common to, like, you know, look over at him 10 minutes later and now he has less than average or something. You know, it took more than one hand maybe, but it just still, it seemed like it happened more frequently that there would be a huge swing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that just sounds like it's a product of being laid good odds a lot more often. Uh, into exactly. Yeah. I mean, especially when you're talking other games like, like an Omaha high low tournament, you know, you start off with a really good, oh, I have ace, three, four, six with a suited ace, and I, you're not supposed to fold preflop, almost certainly. It would be a very unusual situation if you were supposed to ever fold that hand preflop. Um, and now the flop comes, you know, deuce five jack, and you're like, okay, I got like uncounterfeitable nut low draws and straight draws and maybe a flush draw. And, and the only question is how aggressive should you play the hand? You know, should you be betting and raising? Should you be calling? You know, there's there's no folding would never be a realistic option. But when it, you know, runs out, you know, queen, queen, you're like, great, I have a six high, you know. So you've put several bets into this pot correctly. You know, the only question was how many bets were you supposed to have put in before you folded the river? And, and hmm. it just, you know... That kind of stuff happens a lot. Or you even flop a good mate hand. But now when the board runs out, you know, making straights and flushes possible, um, you know, maybe you're supposed to hero call with your three of a kind. Um, 
but that's what it would be if if the guy's betting into you on the river after straights and flushes got there is is just like you know especially like if lows have also gotten there it's like oh you know am i hero calling for half this pot or am i supposed to fold but it's quite easy to now lose a lot of bets playing a hand perfect and it didn't require some kind of cold deck or bad beat to make it so there's just like oh you know just kind of an ordinary hand in most ways and the thing is because it's limit the average stack size tends to actually be a lot smaller than right. you're e- equally deep in a no limit tournament um you know if you look at something like you know a 10k buy-in event at the world series you know not the main event because that has such an amazing structure but if you were looking it's like oh here's a 10k six max no limit um if you look at a tournament like that, when there was like 10% of the field left, the average stack might still be as high as 50 big blinds. Whereas if it was the 10K limit hold'em tournament, the average stack at that point would be at most 20 blinds and probably less than that. Yeah. There's, there's So the I'm in Cleveland, and our local card room has been running a splash pot promotion. And I was waiting to get a seat and i saw that uh the the limit table won a five so a four eight like limit hold'em table wins a 500 hundred dollar splash pot and i was just thinking to myself like how could you like ever it would take a lot to ever fold in that game but uh, people will that, so yeah i know people that, definitely you would have an edge maybe <laughs> people yeah. will fold it pre-flop because they're just like hey you know i have do seven that's what you do with do seven you fold right. it, Maybe not when you're getting laid like two hundred fifty to or you know, hundred fifty to one. Oh no, no, no. There'd be people who'd still fold. I mean Yeah, I know, it's and it's awesome. Yeah, I mean I Jack, would those I'm sorry. Go go ahead. I was gonna say Jack was uh telling me about a, a hand um from an O Limit game where he had a, you know, five hundred dollar splash pot and obviously, you know, you're not gonna get the same odds, but uh, yeah, people are still gonna really overfold in that game when they're getting like three or four to one pre flop on their money. Well, I mean, it can make a little more sense because especially when it's multi-way pot, how often is my deuce seven going to win? And if I have to put in 200 against five other people and then there's an extra 500 out there, you know, I might be correct to fold. But, you know, in the limit game, like you said, I mean, I can just remember situations when, you know, like poker stars would do their big promotions because it's like oh it's our one billionth or our ten billionth hand or whatever coming up and they would you know like oh here's the 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 table where we're dealing the hand and it's like the winner of the pot is going to get you know everyone in the hand is going to get a lot of money everyone at that table is going to get a lot of money like oh you're all going to get a thousand but the winner of the pot's going to get ten thousand and and it turns out that they're playing like one cent two cent no limit hold'em and and the average stack on the table is not even five bucks or something. And people would be folding. And they've like they've like stopped the action and the host has announced, you know, like, hey, congratulations, you know, da 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 da. You guys are all now in this you know, you are the whatever billionth hand. So they would know it wasn't like they hadn't noticed in the upper corner of the screen that this is hand number ten billion. And they didn't even realize it. I mean the game has been paused for a couple of minutes and they're being told all of this and then someone would fold and it's like what the i mean 
you're risking two, three, five, ten dollars for a chance for an extra nine thousand. I mean, if you give me a, a deuce and a blank card, I'm in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, people will still do silly things and all that, but like I said the variance is higher in limit. It doesn't mean that you know the good players don't make money. Uh, certainly, when limit dominated, they would talk about you know. Depending upon the size of the game, you should be making like one to two big blinds per hour in net profit. Um, now, rakes are a little higher now than they used to be, so that, that certainly impacts those numbers. But, I mean, the thinking was in a lower limit game, a player should be able to average at least two big blinds an hour, maybe more, mm-hmm. um, even after rake was paid. So, you know, if you're supposed to win $10 an hour playing 4-8 back when the game was 3 if you're the best player at the table you know now maybe that number goes down but you're still probably supposed to be making 4 or 5 dollars an hour which isn't a lot but if this is just a, a serious hobby you know well then you're making an extra few thousand dollars a year but it, yeah. does, but it doesn't mean the guy who is making 10 or 20 thousand a year playing 1-2 He's now not going to be able to to equal that number without playing bigger than four eight. He's going to have to move up to ten twenty fifteen thirty twenty forty, and and that is going to involve bigger swings than he's having to deal with at one two. Yeah, that's what mm-hmm. I was I was thinking about. Just you know, like for myself personally, like to to have a win weight that would you know match what I make at two five, I would need to be playing twenty forty. So. You know, obviously the swings and the variance is going to be exponentially bigger in that game than in a two-five no limit game. Um, and I also, you know, maybe a mixed game revolution starts when you become the brand, amb- uh, you know, the ambassador for the new poker room. But it's just, it's one of those things where it's, it would be a great thing if I can, you know, maybe Jack in our next home game we start trying to play like new games where you know we all kind of equally are bad at the games just as kind of a way to practice. I think we're already doing that. Uh, well, well, I think you'll have more fun, yeah. and you know, especially like if you're playing limit again. Now people can be a little more lighthearted. They mm. aren't as you know. If you were gonna play like, oh, we're gonna play no limit Badoogie. Now people might be like, oh, you know, like not only am I unfamiliar with the game, but now it is still no limit, and I can lose or win big relative to the stakes we're playing they'd be a little more tense, you know, and all that. But if it was limit, you know, again, I, I just think the games are just more fun minute to minute um, when it's limit poker. So I, I strongly prefer no limit or pot limit games for tournament action. And then I think limit games are my strong preference for cash. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly if it's just like, oh, well, here's some people that are just total donks. And I can win more, win faster. I'll I'll prefer no limit or pot limit against them in a cash game. But I think in the long run, I'll have more fun and actually make more money in cash games playing limit. Yeah. So what what games would you recommend? Uh, you know, people that are new to mixed games start out with. So for for me and Jack's personal situation in our home game, we play. Uh, you know. A lot of No Limit, a lot of PLO, and then this game called Shop, which is unlikely to get spread at casinos anytime soon, but it's... Um, are you familiar with the game? I'm not sure how popular no. it is. 
Uh, Never heard of it. Yeah, it, it might have been something uh, Robbie Trzinski uh, at from Card Player Lifestyle uh, just made up. I'm not not sure. It's you get six. I think cards. You might have another name too. Yeah. But go ahead. Yeah, you get six cards pre-flop, and then um, after the betting, you split your hand into a uh, four-card uh, Omaha hand and a two-card No Limit hand, and then post-flop, it's um, a split pot game where the winner of the No li- where the best No Limit hand gets half the pot and the best PLO hand gets the other half of the pot, uh, and it's played pot limit. And that that hand has been a lot of fun, but it also it you know it plays pretty big where stacks are getting in almost every other hand. Yeah, I mean, it, it can certainly have a, you know, especially with this, you know, you choosing how to, I mean, like, do you make, you know, the Hold'em hand stronger, and, I mean, I guess obviously the best world is like, oh, I flopped a set and a wrap, yeah. I'll put the set over here and hold them, and I play the wrap in Omaha or something. Well, no, you have to pick it before the flop, which makes it... Oh, before the flop. Yeah, you, to you me, it makes it more play. interesting. I mean, you could play oh. it the other way, too, of course, but... Um. Yeah, that's uh, you know my I'm, I'm sitting there trying to like man, how do I want to like divide up most of my hands? You know, I can yeah, see that. It's uh, a topic uh, of much conversation. Yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm sure the thing I like best about that game, not having ever played it, <laughs> is that I'm sure even if you were in a serious game where people were really trying hard to win and not just having fun with their friends, people would probably play almost every hand. And, you know, it's still, at a fundamental level, you know, the percentage of hands you should be playing is, is similar in every game, yeah. depending upon how many people are being dealt in. So, I mean, if you're in an eight-handed game of this, or an eight-handed stud game, or an eight-handed no-limit hold'em game, or an eight-handed limit hold'em game, or an eight-handed badoogie game, whatever, you know, theoretically... You know, your VPIP should probably still be, you know, in the 20% range. Um, you know, maybe a little higher if, if it's a no-limit or pot-limit game and you're one of the better players at reading your opponents and stuff. But in a game like that, I, I can't imagine most of the players fold even, you know, I, I bet their VPIP is closer to 80%. Yeah, that's a great observation because I, in our home game, like, Limping is totally taboo uh, in the No Limit game, in the PLO game for sure. Uh, but then when Shop comes around, even though I think we all, we all definitely know it's not correct, you, you have a lot more just sort of limp. Everyone sees the flop pots. Uh, well, and the reason there, I think it's one of the reasons that drives a lot of decisions. And it sounds like you guys, you know, you're more knowledgeable, more experienced, more confident playing those other games. So you're playing more correctly. And But fear is a big driver of most players' decisions. And the reason the calling station is a common style amongst weak players is fear. It's like the reason they're calling so much is they're afraid to fold because they might have the winner. And they're afraid to better raise because they might have the loser and they don't want to lose more money. And so <laughs> the fear drives them to this middle ground of like, well, let's just call and call. And that way I'll, I'll lose less when I lose, but I won't ever fold the winner. And, you know, the really severe calling stations, the reason you know, they only fold when 
they don't see any chance of winning the pot. And they only better raise when they see almost no chance of losing the pot. So now it's like, oh, I'm not afraid anymore because I know this hand's never going to win, so I can fold it and not worry about getting lucky, uh, that I would have gotten lucky and won. And, or this hand is so strong, I can bet and raise without fear of losing more money because I know I'm going to win. And fear is a huge influence on a lot of players' decisions. And so that's probably why in your home game, people are betting and raising more when they're playing No Limit or Pot Limit Omaha. And yet they're calling a lot more often in this game because they don't, they don't know where they stand. So now that fear ends up being a, a big factor again. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, that's. I definitely totally agree with you in terms of uh, the sort of analysis of the calling station psyche. In terms of the home game, I think part of it is that since the ignorance leads to just sort of a desire to try and gamble and see a flop, which I don't know if I don't know if fear is the right word for that behavior. Uh, or just reluctance to make what seems like a correct decision and then have to like watch the hand go down, you know, not being part of it. So well, to the extent they just want to get it in play, you know, that's obviously that's, that's fine. You know, you're just there to have fun and, and folding isn't fun. But if that were the case, that same guy would be playing lots of hands in PLO and no limit hold'em. Because um, it's like, hey, it's not fun to fold, so I'm playing lots and lots of hands. Yeah, I um, think. All right. You know, if he's doing it in this game only, then to me that sounds like okay. That's because he he lacks confidence, uh, or or you know whatever, and therefore, and especially if he's only calling and not raising almost every time he does play, then you know I think the fear is a big driver, even if he's not aware of it himself. You know, in other words, even if I could get inside of his head, he doesn't think that's the reason, but it probably is. It's kind of like, ah, you know, I'm not sure, but this, but, but you know, look, and I could divide it up this way, and, you know, um, it, it's just a funny thing. Like, that's one reason some games have, have come into existence. When you play high-limit mixed games, they don't play a lot of stud anymore. They play the super stud variations. And and super stud games, like instead of starting with three cards, you start with five and you throw two away. And but what happens is the reason those games kind of took hold is because the weaker players have not tightened up their standards enough. So now they still take a hand that was like, yeah, this hand's probably correct to play most of the time in the normal stud game. And then they're still playing it in the super stud version where your opponent's, you know, range of starting hands is massively stronger than it used to be. So now that hand that was marginally correct to play is clearly wrong to play because their average hand strength has gone up so much. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So, I mean, anytime you're playing too many hands, you're probably going to end up being a loser in the long run. Um, it's just almost impossible to overcome. It was easier 
back before the poker boom when there was so much weak play. It's certainly technically true in any game. Um, you know, if everyone was equally skilled, and let's just presume that, okay, everyone's equally skilled, and you're supposed to be playing 20% of your starting hands in this game, that if now we make you much more talented than everyone else, you are going to be correct to play more than 20%. And the higher your skill level is relative to theirs, the higher the percentage of hands you're supposed to correctly play, because you're going to make better decisions in the post, you know, the, the, the second, third, fourth rounds of betting relative to them. So you want to be in a little more often. But that number probably never goes up. If it was 20% when everyone was equally skilled, it probably never goes above about 25%. And if it does get higher than that, then you are certainly not playing limit poker. You are playing pot limit or no limit, where the value of making much better decisions than your opponents on the end is amplified because the size of those bets is so much bigger. Um, it might even be possible where you're supposed to correctly play 50% of your hands if it was no limit or pot limit. Um, but most people overvalue those things, and they like, well, I think I'm a much better than average player, so I'm supposed to play more hands. So they, if they're aware of this fact, they use that as an excuse to play more hands because almost everyone thinks they're way better than they are, you know, you and you and me included. Yeah, I've seen. I've definitely seen that phenomenon in action. You know, uh, but I mean, certainly without doubt, everyone overvalues themselves. I mean, if you go to that local room of yours in Cleveland, and you ask, you know, the first hundred people you see, like, how do you compare to everyone else in this room? Yeah, uh, you know, I mean, ninety to ninety-five percent of them are going to say they're above average. Maybe almost all of them are going to say that, and probably. Anywhere from 60-70% of them are going to say they're in the top 10%. Yeah. You always see kind of crazy stuff. It reminded me of one of like the last hands of live poker I played uh, before uh, me being on this trip this summer. Not playing much was this guy wearing a lot of bling, suit jacket, probably in his late 60s, early 70s. And you kind of had like a young, young kid about my age there, um, maybe even younger, who... You know, look like they've obviously put a little bit of time into the game, but it was probably one of their first few times like playing live poker, and were like pretty nervous, and you know didn't really seem to be playing very well, uh, even though they looked like they were deeply thinking. And kind of asked this guy who had you know about four k in front of him, who was playing like a complete nit for like the first five hours that I was with him, but this kid was just with him for like the last hour, and he like won two pots or something, uh, one of which was a clue, the other didn't get the showdown. He's like, wow, like you know how how much much do you play poker? Like, you know, how much do you make from this, this game? And he just thinks he's like, yeah, I don't know. I probably about 5k a month. (laughs) And it's just, you have this all the time where it's, you know, I, maybe he doesn't really believe that he's making 5k a month from the game, but he probably believes he's making, you know, half of that or something. Uh, you know, playing seven or eight times a month, like a knit at a two, five game. Well, yeah, I mean, he's not, He's not playing enough to make that much a month, even if he's a great player. Yeah, exactly. whether he's nitty or whatever, he's just yeah. But that, but that's the thing. People tend to like they remember the sessions where they win, and when they lose, it's like, well, that doesn't count because I got coolered or bad beat or whatever. Um, so they they tend to ignore those mentally, um, mm-hmm. and and they come up with a million other reasons. I mean, 
when I teach my seminars, you know, Poker Room will book me. I, I'm coming in. Typically, I've asked them, you know, to buy a minimum number of seats, and they take those seats. They use it as promotional giveaways. So they'll, you know, for their high hand promotion, they'll make their high hand for some period of time where you win a seminar seat. So a lot of the students that are there are not necessarily people that would have chosen to like pay the admission price out of their own pocket. Mm-hmm. And I have had so many students, you know, we're, we're going to start at nine o'clock. You know, I'm there at eight thirty. Other people are milling around, and you know, we're chatting. And the guy says to me, "I shouldn't even be here. I pretty much know everything about No Limit." And I mean, if 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 you if if it's true that you pretty much know everything about No Limit, then if we compare that to something more academic, I'm talking the equivalent of a guy who has the PhD and 20 years experience in the field. And the guy who says this to me at the beginning of the day on that scale, he doesn't have the 20 years experience or the PhD or even the bachelor's degree. He's still in elementary school somewhere. And he just literally, he doesn't know what he doesn't know, and he thinks he knows it all, and literally he he knows almost nothing about the game. He's got some very simplistic strategy in his head of, like, well, these are hands you call with pre-flop. These are hands you raise with. These are hands you fold. You know, and when you flop top pair, you play it this way. And so they have a very, you know, exact strategy that's very simplified, way too simplified, it isn't situational. It doesn't take into account lots of other factors. Like, oh, wait, you mean I should pay attention to how many chips my opponent has? That thought never occurred to me. And yet the guy thought he knew everything about the game. So it's a very common problem of people overvalue. I mean, I know that I overvalue myself. And even knowing that, you know, I still have to struggle not to even though I'm fully aware and accept the fact that, Greg, you're not as good as you think you are, so let's take a step back. You know, at this point, really all I can say is that hopefully I'm overvaluing myself way less than most of my opponents are. But I'm sure I'm still making that mistake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's really wise. And for me personally, like, one thing I, I think sometimes I might, uh, might happen to me is, like, you know, you assume that your skill edge will, you know, translate equally out of position, which is, yeah. I mean, it's not necessarily I actually assume, but maybe I give myself, you know, where I know that I'll be able to take advantage of players' mistakes and read hands well, but use that to sort of ignore, you know, how much being out of position can mitigate that effect. Um, yeah, I think it's. It, I think it's wise to note how easily overconfidence can, you know, lead you to play worse, and also how you should be more realistic about, you know, what you sh- what your expectations should be in the game. Uh, how maybe, you know, in the case like Zach of the person who claims they make five thousand dollars a month, maybe the month where you you did make ten thousand dollars, maybe that's not your true win rate. <laughs> uh yeah, yeah. I, I think all, all these things are really, really helpful to our listeners. So, yeah, thank you so much, Greg. My pleasure. This is, this is gold. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you were mentioning how th- these are, you know, a lot of students in your seminars that you do all across the country kind of say these thoughts. And I was kind of wondering, how did you get into coaching, education, commentating? It seems like you know, it's been a real passion for you, and that you know you're you're trying to do this 
be the poker ambassador for a different room. It's it's something that you know there's not really any of many others, if any, that are kind of taking this type of education seriously the way you are. Well, I guess it probably started. I mean, I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, certainly, even when I was in like high school and college, I would have guided myself towards a career in teaching, except I was aware that teachers generally don't make very good money. So, uh, you know, and I knew I didn't want to, like, be struggling my whole life to, uh, you know, pay the rent and whatnot. So I I never, you know, made that serious effort. But, like, with respect to poker, you know, well before I won the main event, I was very, very active on the 2 Plus 2 forums. Before they existed, I was very active in RGP, which was kind of the first internet, you know, poker discussion group. And it was just something I enjoyed doing was participating in those conversations and debates, you know, in the threads on those forums, you know, about correct strategy. And I really like, you know, discussing the things and helping other people improve their game and stuff like that. And then after winning the main event, you know, now I'm in a position to actually, you know, make money training people. You know, it's like, hey, now that I've got the resume, they'll pay me. Um, so I used to teach a lot with the WSOP Academy, which doesn't exist anymore. Um, and then for the last several years, I've been doing seminars under my own brand, FossilManPokerTraining.com. But it's just I enjoy teaching people. So it's something that, you know, I would do for free, except I do still, you know, need to make a living. So I, uh, you know, charge for it. But. Yeah, I do those group seminars, I'll do private lessons and all that stuff. It's just, I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, I mean, you guys are too young for this, but when I was in college in my fraternity, one of my nicknames was Shell. And that's because Shell Gasoline used to run TV ads where they would have this guy who would answer some question about, like, you know, auto maintenance or something like that. Like, oh, how do you know if your tire tread is too thin? You know, he'd be a quick little TV ad bit, you know, of him pointing out something to help you take care of your car. And because it was Shell Gasoline, he was the Shell Answer Man. And so my nickname in college, one of them was Shell, because I was the guy everyone came to to get help with their homework and and to study for exams. (laughs) I mean, I would literally, I would sometimes have people lined up, you know, lined up five deep outside my room waiting their turn. Because they're like, I don't understand this problem in my physics homework or my math homework or, you know, my chemistry homework. Oh, my God. And, yeah. I mean, I, I was in engineering school, so everyone took, you know, you know, a few years of calculus and differential equations and stuff like that. And everyone had to take all the basics physics classes and the basic chemistry classes and all that. So I'm in a fraternity with 100 guys, and almost everyone is taking those classes. And then I'd even have things like a guy would come to me and it's like, well, here's his junior year, you know, class involving circuitry and electrical engineering. And I'm like, dude, I'm a chemistry major. I don't I never studied this. I can't help you. And he's like, well, can you just like read this chapter and then explain it to me? <laughs> you know, and I'm like, I no, because I didn't read any of the chapters before it. You know? <laughs> so I don't think I can help you. But they'd still be like, but and I'm like, just go to one of the seniors who already, you know, finished the class. Ask him for help. They don't explain it as well as you do. I'm like, well, I can't, I can't help you there. You know, I don't know that. Um, so I guess it's a good thing if it was a normal school, I'd have people coming to me for help with like, well, I got this issue with my class on Shakespeare, and I'd be like, dude, I've never read the play. I'm like, 
<laughs> Sounds pretty lucrative. Well, no, I mean, I wasn't getting paid for it. No, I'm just kidding. In, in, in the fraternity, but uh, you know, but I, I enjoyed doing it as long as I had time. I was happy to help people. Um, you know, I like explaining it. I, I I think that's something that a lot of people are not good at. Um, even just explaining, you know, the, the simple facts of their life. You know, what's you know, like describe what just happened to you five minutes ago. People often do a very horrible job of relaying information. Um, it became almost comical. Like, you know, if there is an issue at the table and the floor or the dealer is calling for the floor <laughs> to come make a ruling and everyone is going, you know, blah, blah, blah. Everyone's talking at the floor man as they walk up and the floor man's like, no, everyone, shut up, shut up. Let the dealer tell me what happened. Well, it became a habit after I was a regular player of Foxwoods. Like, the floor would walk up, everyone would be like, blah, blah, blah. And he'd say, everyone, shut up, shut up. Greg, were you in this hand? <laughs> no. And if I wasn't one of the players, like, involved in the decision, they'd be like, okay, tell me what happened. Like, because I know you will explain it in a comprehensible way, unlike most of my dealers. Because, I mean, you do, like, let's say the issue was just, like, was it a string raise or not? Like, he would ask the dealer what happened. The dealer would be like, well, you know, like, you know, I put out the flop, and, and he bet, and he called, and then he did a string raise. And it'd be like, no, that's not what happened. That's your conclusion. You know, tell me what that guy did physically that made it a string raise in your in your in your mind. Yeah. You know, so the you know the floor is having to on you know, the dealer's like, well, but he uh, he didn't put it all out in one motion. And I'm like sitting there thinking, you know, biting my lip, going like, that's not really the right way to explain it. You know, when the floor would then ask me, I'd be like, okay, look at he did this. He had this many chips in his hand. He came forward and he did this and he did that and I would explain it and show him and then he'd be like, oh, okay, yes, that is or is not a string raise, you know, and like, and he, he, like, does everyone agree? Is that physically what happened? Okay, and then he would give his ruling and everyone's happy. Whereas the dealer's just like, well, uh, you know, he uh, did this and it was a string raise. Like, well, what did what did he do exactly? You know, I mean, these people don't explain things well. And they get off on tangents. Um, you know, it's like those courtroom shows on TV, like Judge Judy. You know, she asks someone a question, like, well, did he give you the $200? And instead of just saying yes or no, the person is like, you know, well, the thing is, Your Honor, you know, he's like such a jerk. And, uh, you know, it's like, I didn't, I didn't ask you any of that. I asked you to, to give you the money. You know, and they... they Kind of like whether he gave me the money or not, like, well, here's my other reasons that you should rule in my favor. And it's like, but answer my question first. Um, so nice. that's, people are like that. They don't necessarily explain things well. They don't necessarily observe things correctly. Um, memory is massively fallible for all of us. I mean, you can have an incident like that in terms of, like, what motion did the guy make when he put the chips out? And even though it only happened a minute or two ago, you might get five different versions from, you know, the six people that actually were looking and saw it happen. You know, I think an, another interesting, like, tangent of this phenomenon is relaying hand histories and yes. talking about metagame. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it's like, do you think I should have made this bet? And by the way, let me tell you all of, like, the evidence uh, in support of this bet, you know, before I get your opinion. 
Well, that and there's people, you know, they start to tell me they're they're and I'm like, okay, but like, how many, how deep was he? They're like, well, I don't know. You know, and <laughs> you know, you tell me the flop was king high, but what were the other two cards? You know, was there a flush draw possible? Uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm like, well, then basically your hand history is crap because there's no way I can advise you as to what you might have correctly done because you don't you're not giving me the necessary information. Um, one of my favorite stories. I'm at Foxwoods. I'm in a cash game because I've busted the tournament that started earlier that day, and a friend of mine who was still in the tournament when I got busted. He now is, I see him walking towards me in the cash game, and I know that he got busted, and he's probably come to tell me his bust-out hand. And, of course, he does. He walks up. He sees that I'm not in the hand, you know, that I'm not actively playing at the moment. And he's like, oh, you know, Greg, you won't believe, you know, how I went out. And he's like, the flop comes deuce six blank. And at that moment, I just start busting a gut laughing. <laughs> you know, and he's like, what, what? And I'm like, do six blank, and I can hardly talk. I'm laughing so hard. And he's like, what? And I'm like, well, it, it, blank. It can't be a blank. <laughs> Whatever the other card is, it matters. And he's like, well, the point is it wasn't. It didn't matter in this hand. And I'm like, yes, it did. Like, you know, it either makes a straight possible or it's an overcard to whatever. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, he hasn't told me what he has or what the other guy has. He just is like starting the hand history with the flop is do six blank. <laughs> and and I'm just and he never got I never learned anything more about the hand because I kept laughing so hard and he finally gave up and left. Um, but just the fact that like like why are you starting there? How come you're not telling me what happened pre-flop? How come you're not talking about how deep are the stacks or any of that kind of stuff? Um, you know, you're like oh, it's do six blank, and I'm like uh, like you know we we got you got to tell me a whole lot more. Yeah, I also there's something where you kind of give reads about a person and I'm certainly guilty of this, but maybe you've played one or two hands with them and then uh, maybe you play another like eight hours with them after this hand and you give them all these reads that you didn't have at the time or maybe you didn't play for another eight hours after with them but you just made way too many assumptions based on a really small sample size and then you give all those reads to your friend and they're like well yeah I guess you played it fine but in actuality you might have really messed up the hand uh, but you kind of have just to take person take a person at their word for sure. you know what they're saying oh yeah I mean if, if you tell me the guy's a maniac or a nit that has a huge impact on you know or in, in many cases will have a huge impact on you know how I think you should have played the hand 